Welcome to episode 16 of Playing It Wrong. This episode, world building part one of, I have no idea how many we're going to do with this, just enough. And the best place to start this episode off is with some call-ins. These are all about the uh, last episode I did, or one of the older episodes. They did about letting the players break the world, which, which they did, sort of. Well, they didn't break it, they just massively changed it, or at least were there at a turning point in history. They were there with the creation of the drow. So here's the columns I got from the great anchorites of uh, Larry Hamilton, DM Dad, and Matt Random. Hey Chuck, this is Larry Hamilton with Follow Me and Die. I think you're spot on about letting the players change the world. I run an open world and what the players do have an effect on it. It's, in my opinion, my fun is watching what the players do to my world and basically you have to be willing to let it burn uh yeah you spent all this time on it and carefully crafted it but that's another reason not to put too much time and effort into it so that players can make their change one of my favorite memories that just popped into my mind was at GaryCon back in the spring i ran a gamma world game and the players accidentally blew up the person that was supposed to tell them where the quote-unquote dungeon was and I was laughing so hard it took me like 10 minutes to recover my composure because I didn't expect them to do that. But I'd let them do it. It was funny. And so I had to come up on the spur of the moment with how they... Hey Chuck, this is Larry again just to finish my sentence. So basically I had to come up with a really quick plan out how they were going to figure out how to get there. It wasn't that hard. Uh, but I still get a chuckle out of that. Blowing up the guy that is the one that's supposed to tell you how to get there. Enjoy your vlog, your podcast. Uh, keep it up. Hey, Chuck. This is uh, Robert at the DM Dad podcast. Um, uh, really enjoyed the episode about making it epic. Um, have to say I totally agree. Um, I think that a game world is a work in progress and that, you know, the player's actions are one of the factors that, you know, determines its development. That's part of the fun, you know, also take some of the workload off of you, you know, like if you, you don't know where your world is going to head, well, the players are going to kind of help you make that decision, you know, by, by what, where they go and what they do when they get there. And, you know, a game world is probably finite as well. Like you might not play that world forever so you know maybe by the end let them break the whole world i don't know you know give it an epic finish anyways i'm running out of time soon um great job i'm really enjoying the podcast hey chuck it's matt from matt random so i'm kind of developing my own setting right now i've been doing it for about a year as we play and i've got kind of the skeleton i've got a pretty involved backstory which most of the players don't even know but i'm curious how much you have information-wise. You know, do you just really have a outline or do you have it actually spelled out? And then my second question would be, I have this one player who's a complete doucher that likes to fact-check me. 
So I'll say, well, you know, the orcs in my world have blue eyes. And they'll be like, uh, three weeks ago, you said they were green or some stupid thing like that. So how do you keep all those facts in line? Do you have like, you know, the DMs, I don't know, lexicon that has all your stuff that you use to keep straight? Anyway, tips, man. I'm a terrible DM and I need some tips. Throw them at me. First, I want to say thanks for calling in, guys. That, that Thanks for the feedback. I really enjoy it. And it uh, gives me a bit of a little, like, at least I'm not doing this to hear my own self speak sort of thing. But let's get on with world building. First of all, I love making worlds. I just love it. And I do it a lot. And a lot of times those things never see the light of day. And sometimes I will cross-pollinate stuff. Like, you know what? I wrote one thing for one world and I'll move it to another world and things will go back and forth. But where do I start when I start making a world? The first place I start is with the game itself. What game am I using or what kind of tone am I using? So in this first part here, um, I'm going to talk a lot about Zoom, which is which is my kind of go-to right now, standard fantasy world. Currently I have ran it with 5th edition and with uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. That sounds like a uh, strange combination to have in the same world, but it works and I'll explain that a little later on starting with the world i've had like a crazy idea pop into my head just last week about oh i want to do lamentations of the flame princess sometime but i want a different world for it so right now this entire world is two notes i've got church of a thousand saints and tieflings which well i've decided that maybe for lamentations of make tieflings and possibly azimir basically the only non-human races but make them different not make them really true races but literally, your direct ancestors made the beast with two backs with something from another world, and you are unique and special, weird, possibly feared, loved, or hated. That just fits with Lamentation so well. That, that, that's all I got on that. So let's go on to Zoom and where I start off with this all this crazy stuff. So first couple things on the design philosophy. As far as details go, I approach it from details that would be important from the character's perspective. Not necessarily the players, but the characters. Now, this these details may be jaded, limited based on, you know, most beginning characters aren't going to have a lot of experience around the world. And second, I really don't make a world map. It looks more like a flowchart. I take one of the, the key feature in the world. Right now, for, for this, is the great city-state of Garnax, which is probably going to be a whole other episode. But that's in the center of the map. And then, all right, the Moorlands are two weeks north, the Ironforge Mountains, where the dwarves live, is three weeks to the northwest, and just a big, looks like a big flowchart almost. And what's more important to characters is not necessarily the distance, but how long it will take them to get there. Now, when I was running this world with 5th uh, edition, I did do a large hex crawl area for what I'm calling the Borderlands, which for the White Box campaign they're going back to. Because I'm going to start them off with Keep on the Borderlands. Yeah! But what I did is I made the cities. Then I put in what modules I wanted and adventures I wanted to run during this campaign. So remember, there's a difference between campaign and world. So for this campaign, I had the stack. Here's the adventures I wanted to run. And then I just put them on the map. Some they never went to. They never went and messed with Red and Pleasant Land. But they did do Death, Frost, Doom. They did one of Frog God's 5e adventures, which was it, the uh, Warlock, uh, and I think they did a couple of uh, homebrew adventures that were thrown in there. 
that's how I kind of look at the world overall. Now the second thing is looking at the world in the really big picture. And of course, most fantasy worlds, the biggest picture is the gods. Now I started off by trying to write out a pantheon for uh, Zoom, which I quickly abandoned doing because I remembered what we did back in the day, back when we were first playing D&D. And you had the list in the back of the book that was, here's all these fictional and other pantheons from history. Use which one you want. And what we did was, well, we used all of them at the same time. So really, our cosmos looked like a cantina scene, you know. But what I decided is, let kind of let the gods that are important be the ones that I write about. Right now, um, in the 5e campaign, there was a cleric. And I don't think we even remember what god that cleric was to. I think it was one of the Norse gods. I don't remember, and I bet that player doesn't remember. But that same player played a cleric in Dungeon Crawl Classics. She played a cleric of Cthulhu. Now, if you go back on the blog, I did a whole post on this. Another one of letting the players influence the world. In this case, it was the rules and the dice that influenced the world. Because if you've, you've played DCC, if you haven't, I'm going to explain it really briefly here. Uh... Clerics don't have spell slots. Every time they cast a spell, they make a roll, and if they roll low enough, their god is like, uh, no, no, bad, I'm going to punish you for asking for too much. The same thing goes with healing, because clerics don't have a healing spell, they have a lay on hands ability. Well, through the entirety of this campaign, every time the cleric tried to heal the dwarf or the elf who ended up dying, Cthulhu would be like, hell no, I ain't healing them. And we came to the chant of, Cthulhu don't heal stupid, and Cthulhu hates demi-humans. So that became part of the world, and we still make jokes about that to this day. So basically, if a player wants to play a cleric, okay, and the, cleric, and the player says, what gods do you have? It's like, what god do you want? And if it becomes interesting enough, it really gets added to the lore of the world. If, now I know I'm going to have to come up with something, which I haven't had to yet, but something for the standard if they need to run to a temple, which I'm going to do. I'll come up with something, or at least let some of the player characters do some heavy lifting on that one that's another thing don't let don't don't be afraid to let the characters you know, the players come up with ideas and then use them so kind of the next thing i look at is races what races for the player characters because this is what's going to be around your table most most of the time it's going to be what's important to the character to players because well it's what they're playing now i don't mess too much with humans other than having these, you know, like I said, the Moorlands is where the barbarians are from. Right? That's enough. But what about the demi-humans? They're always fun to play with. Now, I haven't done anything with dwarves, or not dwarves, but elves, because I just haven't hit any good uh, inspiration, and neither of the players. So far, we've got a rumor that they may be cannibals. But other than that, that's about it. But we also have the rumor about dwarves, too. And speaking of dwarves, here's what dwarves have ended up like in Zoom between my own creativity and input from the players. So the dwarves are primarily Germanic rather than, well, Scottish, Irish, or whatever happens to be in a lot of worlds. They're known for their charcuterie and brewing. And, well, to put it simple, culturally, the best way to describe dwarves, they're rednecks. Okay? You know, a famous dwarf in battle cry is, hold my beer, y'all watch this. Okay, that actually may be an epitaph and not a battle cry, but you get the idea. So, you know, that's how dwarves mostly act. Now... For halflings, I'm going to show you how much of a grognard I am. What are halflings? Well, you got to go back to the early issues of the Dragon Magazine. And there was this comic strip in the back, Phineas Fingers. And the halflings? Well, it was the infamous Halflings Thieves Guild. But I've kind of updated it a little bit. 
Here's a spoiler alert in the comic strip from many years ago. The head of the Feast Guild was Hervé Villachez. No, not in Garnex. Great City of Garnex, the head of the Thieves' Guild, ran by the halflings, is more like Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. So yeah, halflings are basically mobsters. After that, everything comes down to the details. And I'm going to use Matt's example of orcs with blue eyes a lot here on this one. All the details. Okay, well, there's two philosophies I take. One, I'm going to say an old, what would be considered now a very sexist quote from my journalism teacher, which may show you how old I am because the teacher actually said this, that the details, like a story, should be sort of like the hemline of a woman's skirt. Long enough to cover the subject, short enough to keep the interest. And also, like I said in early episodes, sort of like I'm going to make a culinary reference because there's one thing that chefs always say. Don't put anything on a plate that you can't eat. So, the details need to be short, they need to be flexible, and they need to be usable. If they have no effect, then it's not much of a good detail. So you have to ask yourself, why is it there, or why do I even want to put it there? If it doesn't really actually affect anything seriously in the game. Now, we're going to start off with the orcs with blue eyes. So if orcs have blue eyes, how do you keep this straight? Well, keeping details straight is easy. You can do one of two things. Actually, three things. First, talk like a politician. That means when you say things like orcs with blue eyes, you tell the characters, as far as you know, all orcs have blue eyes. Or according to legend, all orcs have blue eyes. If you make a mistake later on or change it, well, it's what you knew and what you knew was wrong. Or if you want to stick by your guns, you just cop up and say, oops, yep, you're right, my bad, I made a mistake. Yep, the orc has blue eyes. Now, like I was saying originally, the details should have some impact, some importance. So if an orc has blue eyes, why? Why is it important? Perhaps it's only one tribe has blue eyes. Perhaps it's some sort of social ranking within the tribe. In other words, if orcs with blue eyes are the grunts, but if they have red eyes, they're leaders, and yellow eyes, they are spellcasters, sort of color-coding them for the player's uh, convenience. Maybe it may denote how old the orc is, young, like, you know, like kittens. When they're young, their eyes are blue, but as they age, their eyes may change. If it's a detail, make it a detail that means something, so to speak. Now, that's not saying you can't throw in details that are just for fluff and trying to keep those all straight. And that's the hard part. And that's why I like making details that are memorable. Like I said, it's memorable all the things that happened with the Cthulhu cleric. But the cleric before, uh, nothing really crazy happened. So we really don't remember that. Now, as you've noticed through this whole long kind of unscripted, well, it is unscripted other than some notes, rant, I leave a lot of the stuff up to the player characters, let them choose what's important for them because generally I still have the same players but different campaigns within the same world so they can look back and it breeds familiarity with the world or they can ask about NPCs even though their character may not know it but they have some idea where to go and what to do without me having to totally lead them by the nose. So let me sum up to get my thoughts back on track because I'm only running from a very very rough outline here. One, do big details. When you do details Make sure they're important or significant. Don't be afraid to let the player, the players and the characters do some of the heavy, heavy lifting for you. Let them choose what's important for them and then run with it. But don't be afraid to put in your own influences if you have something good. And don't let them paint you into a corner. And that's one of the dangers of doing too many details in the world is you may end up painting yourself in a corner that, oh, well, I need to change a lot of stuff because I said this six months ago. 
uh, don't do that. And about the only thing that can keep you from doing that is, well, experience and, uh, and dumb luck. Alright, I think I've rambled long enough on this, so here's my final summation. Make big details, make memorable details. Don't worry about things in places where you're pretty sure the player characters will never go. If they do go there, then quickly make it up and hopefully have a plan B and don't paint yourself in the corner. Let the players and the characters and the rules do some of the heavy lifting for you. Make memorable and monumental events stand out and world-changing and affect the world. Hey, and most importantly, you know the drill. Have fun. Have fun with it. Now, there's one final thing I want to bring up because I just thought of this. The players have never asked. I haven't really thought about it. But running the same world with three different campaigns with the same characters, no one has ever asked or implied what chronological order these events have taken place. Now, with the Drow event, you can kind of pretty much tell whether it's before or after. But then again, it could be an alternate world, an alternate version of the same world. You never know. So, hey, this is fantasy. And one of the most important things is you can do what you want, all right? So, thanks for listening. Keep calling in. And stay tuned for the next episode, because I have a feeling I'm going to get in trouble for that one. You know the drill. Here's the outro. And thanks for listening. Please visit the blog at theymightbegazebos.blog. That's theymightbegazebos.blog. And the letter B, not B, spelled out. Or visit us on Facebook and just search for They Might Be Gazebos. Ask us questions and you might get an answer. If not, we'll just make up the questions and the answers. Remember, roll dice, kill monsters, take their stuff, and have fun. Intro music is Metal Mania by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License. Please visit his website at incompetech.com. That's incompetech.com. Really, visit it. There's also downloadable graph paper and hex paper. Additional sound effects from freesound.org used under Creative Commons 01.0 Universal License.